Hi, I'm Neil Orford and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for what is actually August and September 2017. So let's get started because I've got two months to cover. Let's start the New England Journal of Medicine, the Athos 3 Investigators. So this is angiotensin 2 for the treatment of vasodilatory shock. Is there something other than catecholamines or vasopressin for vasodilatory shock? What about utilising the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system? So this prospective RCT assigned 344 patients with vasodilatory shock, which is a cardiac index of greater than 2.3 or mixed venous sats greater than 70% plus CVP greater than 8 and a mean of 55 to 70, requiring more than 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of NORAD or equivalent for at least six hours to receive either a vasopressor uh, to continuous infusion or an infusion of angiotensin 2 or placebo. They excluded patients who had greater than 20% burns, acute coronary syndrome, bronchospasm, liver failure, mesenteric ischemia, bleeding, AAA, uh, on ECMO or getting high-dose glucocorticoids and it was conducted in 75 ICUs in North America, Australasia and Europe. They found that the study groups were well matched at baseline with sepsis the cause of shock in 81% and a patchy 2 score of 28. The primary endpoint, significantly more patients in the angiotensin 2 group met the criteria for the primary end point of response with respect to mean arterial pressure at hour 3, 70% versus 23%. Now the most common reason for lack of response was failure to achieve a map of greater than or equal to 75 millimeters of mercury or an increase in 10 millimeters of mercury. During the first three hours the angiotensin 2 group had a significantly greater increase in map, 12.5 compared to 3. During the first 48 hours, the mean doses of background vasopressors were consistently less in the angiotensin group, and heart rates were higher in the angiotensin 2 group. Um, at 48 hours, improvement in the cardiovascular SOFA score was significantly greater in the angiotensin group, uh, and there were no significant differences in other SOFA score components. Multivariate analysis. Um, after adjustment for pre-specified stratification variables, angiotensin 2 was the most significant positive predictor of a response with respect to mean arterial pressure with odds ratios of 12.4. Adverse events of any grade were reported in 87% of the patients who received angiotensin and 92% in placebo. Serious adverse events were 61% angiotensin 67% placebo. The rates of adverse events of special interest were similar in the angiotensin and placebo groups, specifically rates of tachyarrhythmias, distal ischemia, VT and AF were similar in the two groups. Death from any cause by day 7 occurred in 29% in the angiotensin group and 35% in the placebo group and that wasn't significant. And death by day 28 occurred in 46% versus 54% and that also wasn't significant. So overall this RCT 
reported angiotensin II infusion compared to placebo was associated with improved mean arterial pressure in three hours in patients with vasodilatory shock requiring high-dose vasopressors. In addition, angiotensin II patients had lower catecholamine requirements and lower cardiovascular SOFA scores. So from here, larger trials with longer duration of follow-up and clinical or patient-centered outcomes are needed to establish if this is a clinically useful alternative to conventional vasopressors. So that's interesting. It looks like there is the potential for a new vasopressor to be tested and perhaps to eventually appear in clinical practice. Let's stay with hypotension and sepsis and shock and go to JAMA in the effect of an early resuscitation protocol on in-hospital mortality among adults with sepsis and hypotension. So what's interesting about this, or what's really interesting about this, is it was conducted in Africa and the background of sepsis research in Africa is really interesting. So we have a before and after study in Uganda that suggested decreased mortality with a multi-component intervention including IV fluid boluses among adults with sepsis. We had an RCT in Zambia which has observed no mortality benefit with a protocol of early IV fluid and vasopressor administration among adults with sepsis and the trial was stopped early for possible harm in the subgroup of patients with hypoxemia and tachypnea. We had an RCT conducted among children with severe febrile illness in Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania which demonstrated increased mortality with IV fluid bolus administration. This RCT, the Simplified Severe Sepsis Protocol 2 trial, was a parallel group, non-blinded RCT conducted at a 1500-bed National Referral University Hospital in Zambia and aimed to add to this literature by focusing specifically on patients with sepsis and hypotension. A total of 209 adults with sepsis and hypotension presenting to an ED in Zambia excluding patients with hypoxia and severe tachypnea were randomized to the six-hour sepsis protocol or standard care. Now the six-hour sepsis protocol was hemodynamic management for the first six hours. They got a two-liter bolus of IV isotonic crystalloid within an hour and then an additional two liters over the next four hours. After each liter of IV fluid, SATs, respiratory rate and JVP were measured and if SATs decreased by 3% or greater or respiratory rate increased by 5 breaths or JVP reached 3 centimeters or greater above the sternal angle, fluid infusion was discontinued. The sepsis protocol limited IV fluid administration to a total of 4 liters including any fluid given in the ED prior to enrollment. And then there was just standard care. So based on a hospital mortality rate of 65%, they figured they needed 212 patients for a power of 80% for an absolute risk reduction in mortality of 20%. So over 12 months, um, there were 382 patients who had septic shock and hypotension, and 212 were enrolled. The characteristics, the average age was 37 years, 90% had HIV, the median systolic blood pressure was 83, lactate was 4, and 50% had pneumonia and 63% had TB. Uh, in the first 
hours of the sepsis protocol, they received about three and a half litres of fluid, whereas the usual care group got 1.2 litres. So, you know, there was a treatment effect. Um, in the usual care group, only 48% of patients received any IV fluid bolus. Um, the blood pressure generally increased over the first six hours of treatment in both groups. 14% um, received a dopamine infusion in the six hours after enrolment in the sepsis group compared with 2% in the usual care group. Um, the decrease in lactic acid uh, from baseline to six hours was greater in the sepsis protocol group, minus 1.2 uh, millimoles per litre, than in the usual care group, minus 0.5 millimoles per litre. Due to limited intensive care unit capacity, 208 of the 209 patients, so 99.5%, were cared for on regular medical wards without the availability of ventilation. And more patients in the sepsis protocol group, 36%, than in the usual care group, 22%, experienced decrease in oxygen saturation or increase in respiratory rate. The primary outcome the early resuscitation protocol was associated with a significantly increased in-hospital mortality. That's 48% versus 33%. 28-day mortality, 67% in the sepsis group, 45% in usual care, P of 0 0.002. Multivariate analysis adjusted for SAPS-3 enrolment showed that risk of in-hospital mortality and 28-day mortality were greater in the sepsis protocol group. Time to event analysis, probability of survival was lower in the sepsis protocol group than in the usual care group, P equals 0 0.02, and there was no difference in subgroups. So this RCT among Zambian adults with sepsis and hypotension, most of whom had been diagnosed with HIV, found that a protocol for early resuscitation with IV fluid boluses and vasopressors increased mortality compared with usual care. The sepsis protocol resulted in greater IV fluid administration, dopamine use and lactate clearance but caused more frequent worsening of hypoxia and tachypnea and higher rates of in-hospital and 28-day mortality. What can we make from this? Sepsis in low-income countries is completely different to high-income countries in terms of demographics, disease, interventions and outcomes. Applying resuscitation protocols in these conditions, these sort of austere conditions, can have negative results, possibly due to the absence of ventilation and other ICU systems, possibly due to other things. Dopamine, a vasoactive agent many of us would not use, does add a layer of confounding. Still, it's extraordinary research and the investigators should be applauded. Let's move on to something a little different in JAMA. A little abstract for intensive care, I guess. Effect of routine low-dose oxygen supplementation on death and disability in adults with acute stroke. The Stroke Oxygen Study Randomized Clinical Trial. So does early prophylactic oxygen help non-hypoxic stroke patients? This prospective multi-center RCT of 8,003 adults with a clinical diagnosis of acute stroke from 136 participating centers in the UK randomized one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one patients with no clinical indications for or contraindications to oxygen treatment within 24 hours of hospital admission to th and they were randomized to three oxygen regimens. 
So the first is continuous oxygen for 72 hours. That was 2,600 patients. The second was nocturnal oxygen for three nights. Um, that's uh, 2,100 hours to 0,700 hours, 2,600 patients. And then control group oxygen if indicated. Again, 2,600 patients. Now, oxygen was given via nasal tubes at 3 litres per minute if the baseline oxygen sats were 93% or less and at 2 litres per minute if they were greater than 93%. They report that there was, um, firstly, the initial recruitment target was 6,000 and that was estimated to provide a 90% power to detect a small um, 0.2 modified Rankin scale uh, difference between the oxygen groups. This was revised to 8,000 participants using ordinal methods uh, without knowledge of interim results to increase the number of patients with severe stroke and thereby provide greater power to investigate any differential effectiveness of oxygen versus control within subgroups. The modified Rankin scale was analysed by this ordinal logistic regression which yields a common odds ratio for a move from one level to the next. Uh, better, uh, which is lower level, with an odds ratio more than one indicating an improvement. So the primary outcome of modified Rankin scale at 90 days had an unadjusted odds ratio for a better outcome of 0.97, which was not significant for oxygen versus control, and 1.03, which wasn't significant for continuous versus nocturnal oxygen. And no subgroup could be identified that benefited from oxygen. Oxygen treatment resulted in a significant de increase of 0.8% in the highest oxygen saturation and 0.9% in the lowest oxygen saturation during the 72 hours of the intervention period in the continuous oxygen group compared with the controls and of a half a percent in the highest oxygen saturation and in the lowest oxygen saturation during the 72 hours in the nocturnal oxygen group compared to controls. Significantly more participants in the combined oxygen groups required oxygen for clinical reasons during the intervention period, and similarly more participants in the continuous oxygen group required oxygen than in the nocturnal oxygen group. So in summary, among non-hypoxin patients with acute stroke, prophylactic use of low-dose oxygen does not reduce death or disability at three months. These findings do not support low-dose oxygen in this setting. This trial does not address the early use of high-dose oxygen, for which there is also conflicting evidence. And the idea behind that, the plausible, I guess, idea is that the administration of high-dose oxygen might help maintain the viability of the ischemic penumbra and allow a broader time window for neuroprotection or thrombolysis. And that question will be tested in the proof trial. Still, it certainly doesn't support low-dose oxygen. Okay, let's move back to intensive care and go to the MJA, the Medical Journal of Australia, and look at a uh, paper written about organ donation. And this is the untapped potential in Australian hospitals for organ donation after circulatory death. Is there a potential for improving organ donation in Australia from the cohort of patients already dying in hospitals who meet the donation after circuitry death criteria. So in Australia our donation rates have increased from 10 donors per million population in the early 2000s to 16 donors per million population in 2014. We are gradually approaching the national target of 25 
DPMP, donations per million population, by 2018, with Spain at 40 DPMP. In many countries, donation after circulatory death, DCD, accounts for an increasing proportion of donations. In Australia, DCD is undertaken in a controlled manner according to Maastricht Category 3, with an increase of 107 donors, which is 28% of all deceased organ donations in 2014. So what is the potential of DCD in Australia using the current criteria and expanded criteria? And this is a retrospective cohort paper from the Australian Organ and Tissue Authority and Donate Life Network. And they looked at prospectively collected data from 75 Australian hospitals for the period July 13 to December 14. They identified all patients who died within 24 hours of discharge from ED or ICU who were ventilated and were neither confirmed as being brain dead nor likely to have met brain death criteria at the official time of death. They defined three mutually exclusive groups. Actual DCD donors who had died a circulatory death and organ retrieval for the purpose of transplantation had commenced in the operating room and this included patients whose organs were deemed medically unsuitable during surgery. Potential ideal DCD donors who had died a circulatory death after withdrawal of cardiorespiratory support and satisfied the ideal criteria for donation of one or more organs listed but did not become donors. And thirdly, potential expanded criteria DCD donors who met the uh, what they call expanded criteria but not the criteria for ideal DCD. So there were 8,780 eligible patients of whom 202 were actual DCD donors. For 193 potential ideal and 313 potential expanded criteria donors, organ donation had not been discussed with the families and most were potentially kidney 416 or lung 117. 117 donors. Compared to actual donors, potential donors are typically older, dying of non-neurological causes, and more frequently had chronic organ disease. Accepting organs from ideal and extended criteria donors declared dead up to 120 minutes after withdrawal of cardiorespiratory support, assuming a consent rate of 60%, would lead to an 18% increase in potential kidney donors and a 5% increase in lung donors. Extending the time to 180 minutes would achieve a 30% increase in kidney donors and a 16% increase in lung donors. Identifying all these potential donors, assuming a consent rate of 60%, would have increased Australian donation rate from 16 to 21 donations per million population in 2014. And that certainly is food for thought and no doubt will be discussed at high levels. So let's go to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and talk about oscillators, which have just about lost their shine in adult intensive care. And this is the severity of hypoxemia and effect of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in ARDS. So is HFOV worth another look? Look, it's biologically plausible. That is, if protective ventilation is good, 
ultra protective ventilation could be better and HFOV at 1 to 3 mils per kilo, high rates, 3 to 10 oscillations per second, may be the best. The clinical benefit is doubtful. Four early trials of HFOV versus conventional ventilation and ARDS reported benefit. Then two larger trials found no benefit and most concerningly an increase in mortality. So remember the Canadian Oscillate trial was stopped at 548 patients with oscillation having a median of three days of oscillation and a mortality rate of 47% while conventional ventilation had a 35% mortality and that was a hazards rate of, rate of oscillation of 1.33 p-value point zero zero five. The OSCAR trial of 800 patients in the UK reported no difference in the primary outcome of all-cause 30-day mortality. It was 41.7 versus 41.1% for conventional. And the subsequent combined and meta-analysis reported no significant effect on mortality. And these trials differed in design and heterogeneity. So would an individual patient data analysis of HFOV trials elucidate the relationship between HFOV and mortality in ARDS. So the authors ended up with four multi-center trials. The US, MOAT, N equals 148 trial, the Netherlands, EMOAT, N equals 61, UK, OSCAR, and Canada, Oscillate. An analysis of the data from the combined 1,550 patients with the primary outcome of 30-day mortality, the longest follow-up common to all trials was used. They used mixed effects logistic regression multi-level modelling to account for clustering of individual outcomes within treatment centres and within studies and adjusted for three prognostic variables, age, Apache 2 score and baseline duration of ventilation using fixed effects. The hypothesis explored was that oscillation may be superior to traditional high tidal volume ventilation strategies but inferior to low total, tidal volume ventilation. They report that the baseline lung injury was severe, mean PF of 114 and PEEP of 12. Proning was rare, except for OSCO, where it was 10 to 20%, so, and only 6% received nitric, inhaled nitric. 30-day mortality was 41%. With oscillation, it was 37.6%. Uh, with, sorry, it was 41% with oscillation and 37.6% with controls was an adjusted odds ratio of 1.17, p-value 0.16, so no difference. A statistically significant interaction was observed between baseline PF and effect of oscillation, with increasing harm at higher levels of higher values of PF. The exact threshold where oscillation moves from benefit to harm is less certain, with a line of best fit crossing at an, the odds ratio of 1, at a PF of 100, so at a PF of less than 100, it's possible that oscillation has benefit. When tested in post-hoc analyses, the odds ratio for mortality with oscillation when a PF less than 100 was 0.83, adjusted for trial age, Apache 2 score, or duration mechanical ventilation prior to enrollment, with, with patients at a PF of 64 or less, the adjusted odds ratio was 0.68 for benefit with oscillation. So contrary to expectations, survival was better among the earlier quartiles of oscillation with patients in each hospital that is in, enrolled earlier in the trials compared to later patients with a clear dose-response relationship. 
and that was consistent in the three largest trials. The overall risk and odds of barotrauma were high to oscillation, and neither respiratory system compliance or BMI modified the effect of oscillation and mortality. So what does this tell us? So oscillation seems harmful in most patients with ARDS, with a possible benefit in those with severe alterations in gas exchange. However, this group that benefit or might benefit is very difficult to identify. That is a PF as low as less than 64 may be needed to exclude harm. Secondly, why was there an increasing harm with oscillation as more patients were enrolled in any given hospital? It could be that low rates of accrual result in loss of sort of startup skills over time or a change in practicing. Still, although that this throws out a glimmer of hope for oscillation in very sick patients, it does look like it's going to be really hard to find a way to apply it well for new units at least in clinical practice. Okay, the next subject, gancyclovir and CMV seropositive adults with critical illness. Something you may not think about that much, but there's an article in JAMA. So, CMV is prevalent in adults, found in 50 to 80% of otherwise healthy adults. In immunocompetent people, primary infection is usually asymptomatic and followed by lifelong latency. This latent CMV reactivates during immunosuppression or critical illness, and this is associated with worse outcomes. However, an RCT is required to establish if prevention of CMV activation is associated with improved outcomes. Before proceeding to definitive phase 3 trials, issues of toxicity of antiviral drugs, feasibility of rapidly identifying CMV seropositive status, and identification of specific clinical outcomes that may benefit from treatment are needed. This phase 2 study, the GRAIL study, that is gancyclovir, valgancyclovir for prevention of CMV reactivation and acute injury of the lung, was a safety and efficacy study. The details are non-immunocompromised, mechanically ventilated CMV IgG seropositive patients with either severe sepsis or trauma with respiratory failure and an ISS of greater than 15 were enrolled. CMV status was assessed using commercial ELISA test and viral load quantitated in plasma BAL throat swabs. Gancyclovir or valgancyclovir versus placebo was the treatment choices and they were given for five days IV and then it could be switched to oral until day 14 or hospital discharge. They report about 60% of patients screened were CMV seropositive, 6% had CMV activation at the time of randomization, the primary endpoint was plasma interleukin-6 levels and there was no change, uh, that was mean change from days 1 to 14 uh, in treatment and placebo respectively. Secondary outcomes included CMV reactivation, which is 12% in the gancyclovir group versus 39% in the placebo group and decrease in low and high-grade reactivation in plasma, lung and throat. Ventilator-free days were significantly different in the intention to treat group or analysis. 23 days for gancyclovir of VFDs and 20 days with placebo with VFDs, P of 0.05. And there are no safety differences. 
So, treatment with gancyclovir in adults who were critically ill did not significantly reduce IL-6 levels, the primary outcome. But there were differences in the secondary outcomes. Gancyclovir was associated with a statistically significant reduction in the proportion of patients with CMV reactivation in blood and a significant increase in ventilator-free days in the intention-to-treat group and in the pre-specified sepsis subgroup. There were no significant differences between gancyclovir and placebo in mortalities, secondary bacteremia or fungemia, or ICU or hospital length of stay. So this is great because these findings do not support routine prophylactic use of gancyclovir in immunocompetent CMV seropositive ventilated patients. However, the secondary outcomes identify potential benefit to focus future phase 3 trials on. Cool, bring it on. Okay, two to go. Back to levosimendin, the big hit of 2017. So, does prophylactic levosimendin reduce the incidence of post-op low cardiac output syndrome in patients with impaired LV function undergoing CAGs with cardiopulmonary bypass? This is the Lycorn RCT in JAMA. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, where we know the answer to this because we had levo-CTS which reported no benefit when levosimendin was used prophylactically in patients with impaired LV function undergoing cardiac surgery. We had CHEDA reporting no benefit in 30-day mortality or other outcomes when levosimendin plus was given in addition to standard inotrope treatment versus standard treatment alone among patients with perioperative cardiovascular dysfunction after cardiac surgery. Still, this trial was underway and it adds to this literature. So, it involved 335 patients compared to 24-hour levosmended infusion commenced at anaesthetic induction with placebo in patients with EF of less than 40% undergoing CAGs with cardiopulmonary bypass. And they found, not surprisingly, no significant difference in the composite endpoint of prolonged catecholamine infusion that is beyond 48 hours after initiation of study drug, use of left ventricular mechanical assist devices or renal replacement therapy. There was no difference in secondary endpoints. In hospital, 28-day, 6-month mortality, each component of the primary endpoint, number of days with circulatory mechanical assist device, number of days with catecholamine infusion, number of days with renal replacement therapy and number of renal replacement therapy kits that were used for each patient. Number of ventilator-free days, out of intensive care unit, out of hospital days at day 28, and total hospital and intensive care unit length of stay. No difference in any of it. No difference in predefined subgroups of EF less than 30%, preoperative beta blockers, surgery type, balloon pumps, yada yada. No difference in safety. So, levosimendin was not effective in reducing the incidence of post-operative low cardiac output syndrome in patients undergoing coronary artery bypass grafting. Maybe the dose was too small. Maybe it could have been started a day earlier to increase protection. Maybe it still has a role in failure to wean from ventilation or mechanical support post-CAGs or acute myocarditis. So, overall, we can say that levosimendin is still looking for a clear role where it produces benefit to cheaper, longer-standing agents. Okay, last article, and this is a 
more of an opinion piece in the American Journal Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, Gender Parity in Critical Care Medicine. Our critical care community is interdisciplinary, interprofessional and international. It includes women and men of various races, ethnicities, cultures and belief systems. Our work environments are also diverse, spanning the spectrum of healthcare systems from urban to rural settings and from centres with an abundance of resources to resource poor centres in economically challenging regions. Our diverse backgrounds and experience shape and enrich our field, generating a collective wisdom that is greater than the sum of its parts. Notwithstanding this diversity, we share a common goal of providing optimal care for critically ill patients and their families. This perspective in the Blue Journal, developed by an international panel, proposes five strategies to ensure gender parity. We propose that critical care societies establish diversity policies for populating the panels they commission, sharing this responsibility with panel chairs and members. Merit-based representation should reflect sex, gender, geography, ethnicity, economy and discipline. Two, we propose that authors document and journals report the principles and methods of panel composition for professional document development. Three, we propose publicly available metrics of women's representation on panels for definition, documents, consensus statements and practice guidelines. Four, we propose that gender parity policies be incorporated into relevant bylaws within all areas of academic critical care, containing explicit targets which reflect, at a minimum, the proportion of women in the specialty. And five, we propose training on diversity and unconscious bias for all critical care academics, particularly for those in leadership positions. Fantastic. Bring it on. Well, that's it for Journal Club uh, August, September 2017. We'll be back soon with October. Have a good time. Come to the website. Thank you for listening.